0: Martin B. Copenhaver writes, Sometimes I am tempted to conclude that Easter is not a day for beginners. This year I would be especially inclined to believe him. It seems to me that if one were to choose how a person gets taught about the Christian faith, one would start chronologically with the Hebrew scriptures, learning about the creation stories, the formation of God's people, the patriarchs and judges, the then kings and prophets, And suddenly, Jesus enters stage right. We'd start with Jesus' birth, followed by his staying behind in the temple at age 12, up to the calling of the disciples. Then one might be ready to hear the Sermon on the Mount, to experience the deep wisdom and humility of Jesus. After that, it might be time to engage Jesus' parables, to hear his humor and his challenge of the religious and governmental authorities. Once we've learned those things, we might be more prepared to believe that he could perform miracles, could raise Lazarus and the widow of Nain's son and the centurion's daughter from the dead. We might then believe that the blind were made to see and that the deaf could have their ears unstoppered by this man's touch or even his mere words. We would understand better, I think, the pressing throngs of people wanting to be taught and fed and healed by him. We might understand then why he was faithful unto death, so committed he was to his mission to express the deep love and healing of God to the world. We would know the disciples' sorrow. We could be with Mary in her grief as she approaches the tomb early this morning. But that's not how the Christian story comes to most of us. Most of us come to Christian education piecemeal. We hear the story of the week, we hit the highlights. We know the big ones and some of the little ones. We are enraptured by the parting of the sea of reeds as the Israelites escape the cruelty of slavery. We hear about Jesus telling a man, take up your mat and walk. We fear the handwriting on the wall telling us we are not enough. We learn those 10 commandments by heart. We delight in thee in the beginning we remember Jonah in the belly of the fish. We grieve Jesus dying on a cross. Slowly but surely, we learn the stories of our faith, absorbing what we can of our history and community life from the people around us. We learn. Today, we enter the story after Jesus has died. Mary wakes in the darkness and goes to the tomb to be near his body, to grieve. Yet when she arrives, she sees that the stone has been removed from the tomb, and she runs straight away to Peter and the beloved disciple, and she says to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The men run to the tomb to see for themselves. They see the linen wrappings from Jesus' body, the cloth that covered his face. And I wonder what they thought. Were they afraid for their lives? Were they mystified? Were they too deep in grief? We do not know. All the text says is, then the disciples returned to their homes. We know that Mary stayed, however. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus's most faithful disciples. When the 12 abandoned him at the cross, she was steady, present to the end. She held on to his mother in her grief. And she was there at the tomb on this morning, weeping at some point in her grief the story goes on she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of where the body of jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet they say to her woman why are you weeping she says to them they have taken away my lord and i do not know where they have laid him In the biblical text, angels are reserved for God's most important messages. They meet Hagar in the desert and announce God's favor on Mary. They wrestle with Jacob in the night and reassure Joseph that he is to parent Jesus. It makes sense, then, that they are here to tell Mary that Jesus is not dead, but alive. But then something strange happens. Mary turns around, and seemingly out of thin air, a man has appeared. John clues us in. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The reader knows that this is Jesus. But Mary doesn't. She takes him for the gardener and, in her grief, asks him for Jesus's body. I hope we don't pass too quickly over Mary's grief here. I hope we don't rush through her weeping, shushing her with, never mind your sadness, something different is coming. Because Mary didn't know that. For her, in that moment, all had been lost. The life she had hoped for dream of a new way of being the hope of more time always more time her sorrow and fear should not be glossed over or rendered unimportant rather they should be held tenderly as they expose the depth of her love as well as her faith that she would be there to the end and even after the end Then Jesus calls Mary by her name. The power of hearing her own name on Jesus' lips makes Mary understand finally, and she cries out, "Teacher!" Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary sees Jesus and he sends her on a mission. Don't miss this. In John's Gospel, if it weren't for Jesus revealing his presence to a single woman, no one would know about the resurrection. If Mary had been too afraid to go back to the men who had just returned to their homes, we would not call ourselves Christians today. Mary went and preached the first resurrection sermon. She saw and heard, believed and announced. Swiss theologian Karl Barth wrote that the reason people come to worship on Easter or any other day is an unvoiced question that clings to them rattling around inside. Is it true? Is it true that God is creator and we are created with purpose? Is it true that God established the foundations of the earth and set into motion the laws that govern our planet, creating bright days and deep nights? creating oceans to kiss shorelines, creating seasons that turn endlessly into one another, creating planets that spin in our solar system? Is it true that God would disrupt God's own created order to raise a man from the dead? It seems a touch absurd, then, that some folks' first experience of Jesus is on the Sunday that begins Eastertide. When we ask all of them to believe this thing that is perhaps the hardest to believe in all of the story of our faith. But maybe Easter is a day for beginners after all. For here's the rub. When the disciples preached in Acts, they preached the resurrection. They started with the impossible. The disciples didn't preach Jesus' wisdom or his stories. They preached this resurrection. They had Mary as their example. The promise held out on Easter Sunday is not that we have to be certain we know all the minute details of David's triumph over Goliath, or that we can recite a creed with full psychological assent. Rather, we should be present to the mystery that even in our deep grief, we can experience wonder. We may know that even in the unbelievable there is something of the mystery of God open to us. In our Lenten series, Entering the Passion of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide to Holy Week, A.J. Levine asserted that in every great story, there is both history and risk. This is the point to which all our study of first century Israel-Palestinian history has led. The risk of showing up at the tomb where an enemy of the state has been executed. The risk of loving after loss. The risk of seeing Jesus in an ordinary gardener. The risk of going back to your friends and preaching that the man they know to be dead is in fact alive. Easter is quite the gamble, to be sure. But this occasion of great doubt is also the source of profound faith. It is the backbone of the Christian faith what was dead can be revived, and more than that can live and move and have its being once more. We long for that which we cannot see, nonetheless to be real and revealed to us, however revelation may come. The essential question of Easter is this, will we risk believing the unbelievable in hopes that the promise is true? Perhaps seasoned, catechized, believers struggle more to believe this than those who will show up for the first time today. Maybe Easter is a perfect day for beginners. Doubting Thomas. How many of us have heard that expression used derisively for someone who wouldn't or couldn't accept something at face value? I think of all the times I've heard about Thomas, the messages have been, oh, that Thomas, he just didn't have enough faith. Oh, that Thomas, how could he not have believed? Oh, that Thomas, he missed out on really knowing Jesus. But I think if we go back and really listen to the story, we'll find something else here, a different kind of truth. A truth that says we are free to seek and question to explore and touch the open wounds of Christ in the world. Verse 19 begins, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then verse 20 goes on, After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The disciples were locked in a room because they were afraid that they, too, would be killed as co-conspirators in Jesus' gang of rabble-rousers. They were in hiding, and Jesus came to them. He offered them peace, showed them his wounds, breathed on them, and told them to receive the Holy Spirit. This part of the passage is sometimes called the Johannine Pentecost, because there's no other mention of the Day of Pentecost, in the Gospel of John. But apparently Thomas was elsewhere that day. He was properly incredulous then when he next saw some of the other disciples and they said to him, We have seen the Lord. I wonder if Thomas was afraid they were pulling a prank on him or perhaps even worse, that their mental health had declined rapidly. However Thomas felt, the writer of the Gospel of John records him as saying something like, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas had a long history with Jesus. Indeed, he had known Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. Thomas knew that Jesus fed and healed and restored people to God and community. Thomas knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Thomas knew that to follow Jesus was to risk death for himself. And in John chapter 11, Thomas encouraged the disciples to stay with Jesus, saying, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas knew Jesus and had counted the cost of following him. Thomas knew Jesus had been crucified. Thomas knew Jesus was dead. Thomas knew the open wound of losing his teacher and friend. So when the disciples told him Jesus was alive, he responded with something like, I said I'd follow him to the grave, and I did. He is in the grave, it is finished. Did you ever notice that Thomas asked only for the proof Jesus offered to the other disciples? When Jesus appeared to them, he showed them his hands and his side, and only then, the writer of the Gospel of John records, did the disciples of Jesus rejoice because, quote, they saw the Lord. Despite his bad rep, Thomas doubts no more than the other disciples. More importantly, however, perhaps we've actually misunderstood the nature of faith altogether, assuming that the more faith we have, the fewer questions we'll ask but the Gospel of John offers us a different vision of faith here, one in which faith and doubt are woven together much more closely than we might imagine. In her viral TED talk, Leslie Hazleton said, doubt is essential to faith. Doubt is the heart of the matter. Thomas believed in the mission and work of Jesus enough to doubt anything that wasn't Jesus as he had known him. For a solid week, Thomas's questions stood. Then on the first day of the next week, Thomas was with the other disciples in the house where Jesus had last appeared. And though the doors were again closed, Jesus entered repeating the greeting, peace be with you. Noting Thomas's presence, Jesus said, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Notice with me that Jesus did not admonish Thomas for his question, but rather invited him to satisfy his doubt by seeing and feeling for himself. Thomas was welcomed into the peace of Christ from the very beginning of the encounter. When Thomas saw and felt and experienced those wounds, his own wound was touched. Once he encountered Jesus, his faith became as real as his doubt had been. Thomas saw a broken but clearly living Jesus, received the invitation to touch his wounds, and responded, My Lord and my God. Thomas didn't merely believe. Of all the apostles, Thomas made the highest confession of Jesus' identity recorded in the Gospel of John. What happened to Thomas is exactly what the writer of the Gospel of John hopes will happen to each of us when we read his gospel, that we too will cry out, my Lord and my God. What Thomas did wasn't doubt exactly. Rather, he actively sought confirmation that Jesus, this risen Jesus, was the one he had known. Thomas was concerned with truth, grounded, embodied, and yes, wounded truth, not some flight of fancy. Thomas wanted to know that his trust was not misplaced, that the person to whom he had pledged his life and his death were one and the same. Looked at this way, Thomas was the one who responded to the invitation of Christ to participate in his life, death, and now resurrection. Thomas is a disciple just like the rest of us. Thomas is no fool, but rather comes at things realistically and counts the cost. The man who had experienced so much of Jesus, who had been with him in the flesh, the man who had encouraged the disciples to follow Jesus even to death, the man who felt the fresh ache of the open wound of losing his friend and teacher, this man heard Jesus' invitation and believed. Jesus invited Thomas into his brokenness and to bear witness to Thomas' own wound. Richard Rohr writes, This archetypal encounter between doubting Thomas and the risen Jesus is not really a story about believing in the fact of the resurrection but a story about believing that someone could be wounded and also resurrected at the same time. Put your finger here, Jesus says to Thomas. Like Christ, we are all indeed wounded and resurrected at the same time. End quote. When Thomas recognized the wounds of Christ, he was able to confess who Jesus was to him. And the writer of the Gospel of John invites us to do the same. Easter is an open wound. Easter is the very foundation of our faith. That understanding that God God entered the world, felt pain, was killed, and still loves. Easter is the proclamation that the love of God requires us to attend to the brokenness of the world. Easter is the pain of betrayal and the impact of empire. Easter is the gaping side and nail-pierced hands of the one God loves. Easter is the wound that remains even after resurrection. Easter is the mark on our bodies sunk to soul. Easter is the trauma we must face if we are to follow Jesus with integrity. We cannot ignore the open wounds of disease, poverty, racism, sexism, war, terrorism, or global warming. We cannot ignore the open wounds of abuse, rejection, loneliness, or suicide. We cannot ignore the open wounds of the people around us, the slow death of the one God loves. Easter is and must always be an open wound. Yet, it is out of this very wound that our faith is born, the faith that says, yes, bad things happen, and yes, life is hard, and no, it doesn't seem fair. But listen deep. There's more to the story. Easter is the open wound out of which blood and water flow. It is the blood of passion for God and others throbbing in our veins. It is the living water of the grace of God, offered to us each and every day. Easter is the open wound that invites us to deeper faith, a faith that calls us to question why things are the way they are, and then do something about it. Easter is the open wound that invites us to look and really see the world and the people around us. Easter is the open wound that refuses to be healed lightly. Easter is the open wound Jesus invites us to explore deeply. Easter is the open wound that the Holy Spirit uses to breathe life back into us when we think we cannot go on another single moment. Easter is the open wound we can bear because we have been offered peace in the midst of our pain, fear, and deep grief, Easter is an open wound, and what a gift that is. My senior year of high school, I went on a retreat called Kairos. It was a faith formation retreat meant for seniors that involved some of our teachers and administrators as leaders, as well as students who were previous retreatants serving as small group leaders. For three and a half days, we listened and learned, laughed and wept together. It was probably the most emotional experience of my life to that point. On the final night of the retreat, everyone gathered in the great room for a special evening. No one had told us what it was about. Imagine my surprise then when the leaders told us they were going to read a letter to each of us written by our parents. I remember seeing many of my classmates in a new light that evening. My retreat roommate had been hit by a car early in our senior year and had endured surgeries and lots of physical therapy. Her parents letter was so emotional that there wasn't a dry eye in the room. The reading of my letter came near the end. My mother had written it. I remember being surprised by its contents, by the tenderness therein. It spoke of the hope she had for me going off to college soon, and how my siblings would miss me when I left for school. High school was difficult for me in many ways, and I was still more afraid of what university would hold. I was walking a broken, uncertain road, not knowing how my life might change not knowing what was to come. After the emotional reading of letters, we were given a packet with letters from any of our teachers or peers who had already been on such a retreat and who wanted to write to us. My packet had 25 or so. My roommate and I went back to our room and read our letters. I still have that packet of letters 22 years later. It is in a box containing some of my most cherished things. That retreat really was kairos for me, the Greek word for sacred time. Kairos is an appointed time in the purpose of God, a time when heaven breaks into our temporal plane. It may be a moment or a season, but kairos is marked by the sense that God has become suddenly and radically present in our everydayness. This week's text too is about sacred time. It is about the space between despair and hope, the absence of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit. It is about walking, talking, questioning, and seeing. It is about the breaking of bread and the drinking of a new testimony. It is Kairos. The text begins Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And talking with each other about all these things that had happened. A seven mile walk down the road of broken dreams. At a moderate pace, that walk would take two to three hours. Cleopas and his friend then had ample time to discuss all that had transpired. Luke doesn't tell us much about what they talked about as they journeyed back into their pre-Jesus lives of fishing nets and routine, just that they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. These disciples had bet their lives on the wrong guy, and the movement was over. Jesus was dead. And what's more, they had heard from Mary Magdalene that Jesus was back, but they thought she had simply gone mad with grief. Suddenly, an interloper appears. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other as you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. The stranger's question stopped them in their tracks. Cynthia A. Jarvis writes, When God enters a conversation we think we are having with one another, we cannot but find our lost selves standing still. At issue are not the miles before us, but the moment at hand, and the eternity that has just invaded time. This is Kairos, friends, the holy space in which God's atemporality and our finitude intersect. The friends are agog. How could the stranger possibly not know what has happened? The text goes on then one of them whose name was cleopas answered him are you the only stranger in jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days he asked them what things they replied the things about jesus of nazareth who was a prophet mighty indeed, deed and word before god and all the people Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. The friends recount the story of these last few days, how they longed for redemption that seemed not to have come. And to make it worse, Mary Magdalene, or in Luke's gospel, the women, had come with, had come to them with a preposterous story of an empty tomb, which Simon Peter had later verified. That was it, they had to get out of the city. Now that Jesus was dead, their lives too were at considerable risk. Surely the stranger understood why they had to get out of town. And yet in response, we get this shocking, almost vapid answer from Jesus. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. Um, Jesus, I'm not sure it's very kind of you to call your friends foolish and slow, particularly in their deep grief but when I step back, I think. Maybe they, like us, have forgotten that God is a God of hope as Jesus illustrated through his telling of the scriptures. Maybe they, like us, have outgrown their belief in redemption and have resigned themselves to the way things are. Maybe they, like us, don't even know their eyes are closed until they are opened. Cleopas and his companion offered the stranger hospitality, and it became the doorway to grace. Molly T. Marshall writes, Hospitality expresses deep vulnerability. Welcoming a stranger is always risky, and the tables might be turned, for good or for ill. It is not readily apparent who the guest really might be. Jesus becomes the host at this meal, which becomes an expression of thanksgiving and deepened faith. Sharing the common meal transgresses boundaries and allows communion with Christ, who meets with us whenever we gather at the Lord's table. And so, with Jesus as the host, Jesus reminded them of who he was by his deed. He used the same formula they knew then and we know now. He took the bread blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And in that moment, in that space, they knew. They knew that the one who had walked with them then was the one with whom they had walked a great many roads. They knew Mary Magdalene was right. The moment their eyes were opened, suddenly he was gone again. Except he wasn't gone. Marshall continues, Luke provides a key bridge for understanding divine presence as seeming absence. Christ vanished out of their sight as an indication that visible apprehension could not sustain enduring faith. Holy presence would remain, but not in the form they had known. It should not surprise us, friends, that this story moves from isolation and despair to community and celebration. This is the way God works, after all. It is the goal of the Holy that we should exist in relationship to God and one another. From the beginning in the garden when God said it was not good for Adam to be alone, to Jesus telling the disciples to forgive seventy times seven times. The whole thrust of being God's people involves being enfolded into loving relationships and bringing others into community. The Most High always creates space for the outsider to become the insider. This is the nature of Kairos. To be surprised by God. To be drawn into relationship to glimpse the eternal. Whether it's on the road back home or the journey into a new place, Kairos is the story of things coming into fruition in their own time. Not bound by the pressing forward of the clock or the calendar, Kairos things happen in Kairos time. The hope we find in this text, friends, is that Easter doesn't always come in our hearts three days after crucifixion. If you don't yet know Easter in your very marrow, there is yet time. We may find resurrection life on an ordinary Tuesday afternoon in July. That is the beauty of Kairos, the time is made sacred by the God of connection. This is the God who waters fragile seeds and feasts with us at harvest time. The God who attends births and accompanies the dying. The God who enlivens our broken spirits and nourishes our courageous acts. The God who is present with us at the Eucharistic table. Kairos makes space for a pilgrimage of faith to begin and begin again. As it has been, so it shall be. May we be a people ready to open our arms to community, recognizing that we may, too, find the risen Christ in the midst of Kairos time. Amen. People of the road, rejoice, for God is with you. Bring God's love and peace to all whom you meet. And I bless you in your going, saying, God has made of us an Easter people ready to tell the news of death's defeat, eager to share our joy and resources, alive with hope, accompanied by glory, on the road with Jesus. Bless our gathering together and our going forth. Amen.